welcome to this week's episode of Seen and Heard, industry updates for the modern dairy family. I'm Darby Toth, a technical field services representative with Western United Dairies. And I'm Melissa Lima, the North Coast and Organic Field Services Rep with Western United Dairies. Welcome everyone to episode 26. Again, I say this all the time, but I can't believe we're already at 26 episodes. And I can't believe this is the first day of October that we're recording all of this. I know everything Halloween is starting today, and I don't know if this year can get much scarier, so maybe it's been Halloween all year, but um, I, yeah, 26 weeks we've been quarantining and trying to work through this and get good information to our producers, so I'm excited, 26 episodes. Um, we, I think this is a pretty awesome run we've had with 26 episodes. I agree, and I am really excited about this episode. We are going to have our usual market update with Annie. We also have a labor update with Tony Raimondo, kind of some things that are going on in the COVID-related labor world. And then finally, we have an interview with Tessa Hall from Curdy Made Dairy, and she's going to talk to us about some of the litigation that they've been going through with their dairy. So I'm really looking forward to that. I think it was a really good conversation with Tessa, very honest and open, and really a precedent-setting issue for our industry. Absolutely. I've known Tessa since I started with Western. I've always respected her as such a thoughtful, level-headed first field rep and now dairy producer. And it was so great to get to talk to her. Unfortunate circumstances for her family, but she um, really is a great person to be able to tell their story and hopefully make a difference in something that could affect the entire industry. So I think without further ado, we'll jump right in with Annie and the market update so that we could get you over to Tessa's interview. Annie, take it away. Thanks, uh, Melissa and Darby. It certainly was a decent week for dairy markets where things moved mostly in the right direction. In particular, block cheese came out as a clear winner. We had a gain of 19.19 cents on USDA block cheese prices, which now stand at 216 per pound. And really to add optimism to this price level that's already pretty good, CME blocks are hanging out even higher levels. We had the price go up to uh, 257 um, today. And so just a, a clear path for USDA prices that they can still keep going up. And so this is good news, um, welcoming for FMMO pricing. And um, barrel prices, you know, they've been dragging a little bit more but they gained five cents this week. They're still much below blocks. And so we have USDA barrels at $1.68 this week. But if we look at the CME, they're finally starting uh, to go up. And so we went to $1.80 yesterday and a big jump to $1.90 today per pound. And so this is a nice improvement from the $1.63 we were at just a week ago. And if we look outside of the U.S., um, Dairy Market News reported Oceana cheddar prices that are a little bit lower than the U.S. And so the excitement is not spread out everywhere, but the price over there was um, $1.87 per pound. That being said, it was up $0.07 cents from last month. And so the improvement um, could be continuing in that area as well. Now, butter has been on the low end of the excitement level. We've, we've seen significant gains on the cheese front. Butter has been rather steady. Um, you know, we gained three cents this week, so we went above the dollar fifty threshold. We're dollar fifty one now for USDA butter, and th that was the first time the price reached above that level since mid August. And so, uh, it took us a little while to get there. CME spot butter um, really continued to be lacking in excitement. The price settled at the dollar uh, fifty one. 
yesterday for uh, spot butter. Again, same thing today. There's just not a whole lot happening on uh, the butter market, the CME, and there's not no volume traded either. And so just not much interest on that front. If we look, though, outside of the U.S., it's a bit of the opposite situation. According to the Dairy Market News price survey in Western Europe, butter prices were up to $1.87 per pound. And so there's a little bit more value um, out there. So hopefully our butter price can uh, trail on that. But export markets are not as big in a uh, picture um, for butter as it is for other commodities like powder, which is a great segue into the USDA non-fat dry milk price that managed to stay above the dollar threshold this week. Uh, in fact, we added another penny. So now we're a dollar two. Um, so this is definitely welcome. You know, we had started a good price improvement through 2018, 2019. The price was going up. And then this year really came to a crashing halt, went all the way down uh, below 90 cents a pound. Uh, but finally, we're starting to see this slowly but surely improvement. And if we look even at the CME, the Nafedremel price was $1.14 this week. Outside the U.S., the Dairy Market News reported the Oceana spot price at $1.34 per pound. Um, so just overall good improvement on the powder front. And so hopefully this keeps going as we roll into um, the next few weeks. And um, there was another big event that's not related to uh, dairy markets per se, but is related to dairy in California. And so there was a quota hearing um, on September 30th and CDFA had set aside two days, but um, only one was necessary. It was a rather um, non-contentious event. And um, so the hearing um, was specifically on the petition from United Dairy Families of California. We've mentioned this on the podcast in the last few weeks. We've been talking about this was coming. Um, brief summary, that petition um, was a result of a, a survey and analysis process that, you know, had been going on for uh, over a year that ended with a announcement at the farm show in February of 2020 of what the proposal was. And that proposal was for a sunset of the quota implementation plan on March 1, 2025. And a second component of that proposal is to bring all the regional quota adjusters to the same level as Fresno, Kings, and Tulare, which is the lowest level at $1.43 per hundredweight. So during the hearing, a UDFC uh, presented, and so Dino Giacomazzi and Dr. Bosick detailed how the proposal was arrived at. There was some legal arguments from Megan Oliver Thompson. Um, she presented the legal basis for the, the petition, but overall, um, the other two parties that we've heard about at other hearings, Safe Quip and Stop Quip. They also had representatives, but it, it was a lot less confrontational than uh, during the previous hearing on Chapter 3.5. And so I think that um, that's why things went a little bit quicker. And so where does that leave us? Um, so the administrative law judge that um, presided over the hearing provided until October 12 for those who requested to file a post-hearing brief. So there's going to be a period here where parties are working diligently on that. After that, um, he will analyze the hearing record and provide a recommendation to the secretary. She ultimately can make the final decision. And if you look at CDFA's website, it states that within 45 days of the secretary's determination, CDFA shall initiate the referendum process in the same manner as provided for the QIP's original approval. And so initiating the process could also be, you know, setting a date in the future. So it doesn't mean necessarily that it's right around the corner, but this is what um, their guidelines are saying on their website. So more on that 
uh, in the next month or so, I would anticipate we'll have an update for you. And to close out my section, a little bit of a shameless uh, self-promotion here, we've been doing these weekly Zoom kitchen table meetings and I've been taking the second week of the month. We're doing them on Thursday. Next week, I will be joined by um, risk management extraordinaire Tiffany Lamandola, who is with Blimling. And we will be presenting on the Dairy Revenue Protection Program and the opportunity it can present for California dairy families. Um, it's a risk management and insurance tool for dairy operations. Many families in California have had uh, good success with that in 2020. Um, so I think it's uh, a tool that is definitely worth considering. So if you want to learn more about it, there's going to be a bit brief presentation and that's going to be followed by discussion and Q&A. So please join us next Thursday, uh, October 8th on at 11 a.m. for more information on that. And so with that, until next week, back to you, Melissa and Darby. Hi, I'm Jessica with PG&E. 811 is a free service to keep our community safe. Before you do any digging, PG&E will mark your gas and electric lines so you don't hit them. Call 811 before you dig. To learn more, visit pge.com safety. Thanks again, Annie. And now we're going to listen to an interview that Melissa and I had with Tony Romundo, and he's going to talk to us about some current labor issues in the industry. So here we go over to Tony's interview. Well, we are here today with Anthony Romundo, and he's going to go over some new COVID guidelines and regulations that just dairy producers should be aware of. And we're really excited to have you this morning. Thank you. I'm always happy to be here. So there have been um, some changes to the requirements employers must follow in light of COVID-19. And we wanted to check in with Tony today to go over those changes and updates. So again, our producers can uh, understand their obligations at this time. Yeah, we've had um, two new bills that have taken effect, um, AB 685 and AB 1867, um, which are two bills that were uh, just signed by the governor uh, AB 685 was signed on um, September 17, 2020, um, and uh, AB 1867 was signed on September 9, 2020. Um, I think the one that is probably more important of the two for dairy producers is um, AB 685. Um, that one requires some reporting addresses some reporting requirements and notices that need to be provided. Um, when we have potential COVID-19 exposures in the workplace. So there's, there's a, 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 a few major areas that, this, that AB 685 covers. AB 685 um, requires notice of potential COVID-19 exposures uh, to employees and then also to employers of subcontracting employees who are on the premises at the same uh, work site as what's considered a qualifying individual, which I'll go through that in just a minute. Um, if there's a union involved, that there needs to be notice given to the union. We don't really have any unionized dairies, so that shouldn't impact um, um, dairies. The uh, employees need to be provided with information regarding uh, any COVID-19 related benefits um, that the employees may be entitled to under applicable federal, state, or local laws, which could include workers' comp benefits, um, options for exposed employees, including COVID-19 related leaves of absence, um, any supplemental sick leave, um, and any um, negotiated or policy-based leave provisions that the employer allows. So if you've been accommodating people and they need time off, 
um, you'll need to be able to explain you know, how that's working from a, a standpoint of employer policy, uh, as well as reminding employees that they are free from retaliation, discrimination, um, or harassment related to any COVID-19 exposures or health issues. Um, and then uh, notifying employees and the employers of any subcontracted employees of any disinfection and safety plans that um, the employer uh, plans to implement in response to the exposure or potential COVID exposure. These are notices that need to be provided in the manner that the employer normally uses to provide notice to uh, employees of any employment related information. So um, where we recommend that you go with that is um, if you normally notify your employees of things verbally, which is what we see on a lot of dairy farms, it's a good, good idea to call people together for meetings to notify them of these issues verbally and keep an attendance sheet so you have proof if you're ever inspected by OSHA. And when I talk about attendance sheets for these type of meetings, what I mean is a sign-in sheet for the employees who attended the meeting, as well as a quick outline that you attach that you staple to that attendance sheet, which can just be a very simple outline of what you talked about at the meeting so that there's no question that you covered the necessary areas um, under the law. The information does have to be provided to the employees in a manner that is consistent with the language spoken by a majority of employees in the workplace. That means we're gonna to need to do English and Spanish at most areas. Um, if you can, it's very good to have a written distribution to employees. Um, and posting things on with your other employment related posters is also a really effective way to do this. And when you have that meeting, you can remind employees that they, you do have the posters and the posters provide them with information um, related to a lot of those benefits. For example, um, I'm going to talk in a minute about the federal emergency sick leave provisions. There's already posters that are available for that. You should have those postings up. If you have any difficulty getting those postings or getting them in Spanish, uh, let Melissa or Darby know and, and they'll reach out to my office and we can help you guys get what you need um, to post those things. You have to maintain records of these types of notifications uh, for a minimum of um, three years. So when um, employers are notified of uh, there's been enough cases that would qualify as an outbreak under the law uh, and uh, an outbreak means three or more laboratory confirmed cases of COVID-19 within a two week period among employees who live in different households. So that can be a factor, you know, a lot of times in, in, with, um, with dairies and other farming operations, we employ multiple employees who live in the same household. It has to be uh, three or more lab confirmed cases within a two week period among employees living in different households. That would be considered an outbreak. When there's an outbreak, you have to notify your local public health agency of the name within 48 hours of the names, phone number, occupation, and work site of anybody who's involved, anybody who is considered, again, a qualifying individual um, related to the outbreak. So what a qualifying individual means is a person who can meet one of the following requirements. Either there's a laboratory confirmed case of COVID-19, uh, a positive COVID-19 diagnosis from a, public, from a, a licensed healthcare provider, a COVID-19 related isolation order issued by a public health official. And those can be tricky because a lot of times, for example, if you have say a wife who tests positive, the public health officer will order that the husband be isolated even though there's no confirmed diagnosis or confirmed lab result with respect to the husband. So if, if there's an isolation order, that's gonna be a qualifying individual or a death due to COVID-19 as determined by the county public health department. So if you have employees who come to you and say, oh, I've been told I have COVID or I've been tested positive for COVID, it's really important to get documentation from them. 
which they should be able to give you. If they tell you that somebody in their household uh, sadly passed away due to COVID, make sure you get the documentation from them so you can make sure you meet these, um, these reporting requirements. I think this is a really good opportunity for dairies to take a look at their Cal OSHA compliance because OSHA is gonna be enforcing a lot of this stuff. And so far, what we've seen from OSHA is they've been relatively light-handed on the enforcement part of this. I know they've been visiting some farms and ranches, and I've gotten reports back that, that some of that visitation is done. And for the most part, they seem to be just kind of checking posters and paperwork and actually trying to give folks tips on how to comply. But sooner or later, they're going to be issuing citations. Um, and these, these new bills, which I'll talk about 1867 in a minute, uh, do make it pretty clear that there's a presumption of a serious OSHA violation if we don't follow these rules. So um, at sooner or later, the tickets and the citations are going to come. Dairy is considered generally a high hazard industry for workplace safety requirements, uh, which means OSHA kind of already has their eye on the dairy industry. And again, in recent years, they haven't been terribly aggressive about enforcement against dairies. But even before COVID, we were starting to see that ramp up. Um, Cal OSHA has what's called a consultation service, and I know that many of our dairy farmers are reluctant to kind of reach out to the government for help because, candidly, the government is very rarely helpful to us. Um, but Cal OSHA consultation is actually a really good service, and it's one of the, those of you who know me know that I'm certainly no fan of government agencies, but um, Cal OSHA consultation is one of the few good ones that's out there. And one of the things that's nice about Cal OSHA consultation is, first of all, it's free. So, well, it's not really free because you're already paying taxes, but you already paid for it. Um, they will help you uh, achieve OSHA compliance, um, and they can't cite you for anything they find. So Cal OSHA compliance can come and visit your operation. They can take a look at what you do, and they'll give you a checklist of things that you need to do to be in compliance, and they cannot find you. They cannot cite you. So a chance, it's a chance for you to essentially get a dry run in an OSHA inspection. Then you're spending your money on meeting what they expect of you. One of the reasons I like Cal OSHA compliance so much is because it really comes straight from the horse's mouth. And one of the problems that we have with OSHA generally is, you know, one hand doesn't always know what the other hand is doing. So we'll have one OSHA inspector visit an employer and say, oh, you're fine. And then the next inspector comes along and says, no, there's this laundry list of serious violations. With Cal OSHA consultation, if you're subsequently visited by enforcement, which are the people that will cite you, and enforcement tells you that you were failing to do something and it wasn't on that list that consultation gave you, it gives us the ability to push back on the fine there and say, hey, wait a minute, this is an employer who voluntarily went, went to OSHA consultation and you're trying to fine us for something that consultation didn't even tell us existed. So it creates a nice baseline of compliance that helps protect, protect you from the, the sometimes arbitrary world of, uh, of Cal OSHA enforcement. Uh, so I've always been a fan of Cal OSHA consultation. I've recommended it a lot, but I haven't seen a lot of people really take, the, take advantage of the fact that that program is there. Um, and I would encourage you to think about it. They have a website you can take a look at. I know that um, Melissa and Darby are probably pretty familiar with the program and they can talk to you about their experience with it. But in general, I find it to be a fairly helpful uh, process. And again, and you know, I'm kind of cynical about these things, but I do think being able to have, tell a government enforcement agent, hey, look, we already went to you guys and you told us what we were doing wrong and we fixed all of it. So you can't then hit us for something you didn't tell us about. Um, I, think, I, I think that baseline of compliance is really, really helpful. 
Um, if you don't like coalition consultation, you don't like the idea of bringing the government in. I mean, I have access to a lot of different safety consultants, but those guys aren't cheap. And, you know, generally speaking, the way things are in the industry these days, I think it's important for dairies to save as much money as they can. So I really would encourage you to think about that free government option. Um, the other bill that the governor signed is AB 1867. I don't think this one's going to impact a whole lot of dairies. It codifies his emergency supplemental paid sick leave requirement um, for California employers that was previously an executive order and now it's a matter of the labor code. But it only applies to employers with at least 500 employees throughout the United States. And I'll be honest with you, I can't think of a single dairy that I've ever encountered that has as many as 500 um, employees. Um, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on those sick leave requirements. If um, you know, you're some type of nationwide operation, you think you have more than 500 employees, let Melissa or Darby know, and I'm, I'm happy to chat with you about it. Um, uh, but I don't think this was one that's really going to affect our, our small dairy farmers um, uh, significantly. Now, what our dairy farmers do need to be um, aware of is that the, um, the federal paid sick leave does apply to you. So earlier this year, they passed what's called the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. This act applies to all employers with less than 500 employees. That's why the state used that 500 employer cutoff, because the small employers are already covered by a federal requirement that our, um, uh, our dairy farmers do need to be aware of. And that's the one that I think some of you are familiar with, that employers are entitled up to 80 hours of paid sick leave. Um, and then if they work less than 80 hours over... Um, uh, if they're less than full-time employees, then essentially it's a pro rata uh, calculation of the hours that they would have worked within a two-week period. So it's two weeks or 80 hours. Uh, and it can be no, no greater than 80 hours, but it might be less than 80 hours if they, if they do work less than 80 hours. And employers have to pay employees um, the regular wage when they use uh, time off to care for themselves. Um, up to $511 per day or a total no more than $5,110 in the aggregate. Um, if they're caring for a person who's under, in their family who's under an isolation order or quarantine order, then they can get two thirds of their regular pay up to a maximum of $200 a day or $2,000 um, um, in the aggregate. Um, and how they become eligible is if they're subject to a federal, state or local quarantine or isolation order if they've been advised by a healthcare provider to self-quarantine due to concerns related to COVID-19, if they're experiencing symptoms and they're seeking a diagnosis, like they're trying to get a test or they're trying to get into their doctor, um, if they are caring for an individual who is subject to a quarantine order or has been advised by a healthcare provider to self-quarantine related to COVID-19, um, if they're caring for a child and the child's school or place of care has been closed, uh, or the child care provider is unavailable due to COVID-19 precautions, um, or there's some other substantially similar um, condition, condition in place. Uh, so this is just some of the requirements you need to be aware of that apply to our smaller employers right now, um, at least during the term of this, uh, this COVID emergency. And we'll have to see down the road what this holds. We've been getting a lot of questions here you know, since the spring about um, these type of uh, paid time off or documentation requirements. The EEOC has already released guidance that we're allowed to ask employees for documentation when they claim they need time off due to a COVID uh, diagnosis or that of their spouse. So um, if you do have questions about what kind of documentation that you need, 
Um, you can always call our office directly. Uh, keep in mind that as members of West United Dairymen, you're entitled to an hour a year of free consultation from us. But both Melissa and Darby, I'm sure, would tell you, and other dairymen will tell you, I don't count the clock on that. If you have quick questions and you need answers to them, we'll get you those answers, and I don't want you to be worried about paying us a bill. Um, if you don't believe me, call Melissa, call Darby. They'll call me, and they'll get the answer for you, and they won't tell me who you are so that I can't send you a bill because uh, they like it when their members get free help from us. So we are here to help you in all seriousness. We're here to help you. Your folks at Western United Dairymen are here to help you and support you through this. If you have some kind of bigger problem where you need legal representation, you're always welcome to talk to me and we'll see what we can do to help you and, and what we can talk about what that would cost and all that kind of thing. But if what you need is answers to quick questions in real time about how to process these types of requests, please don't hesitate to call us. Don't hesitate to call Melissa or Darby uh, and we'll make sure that you get the answers that you need. Uh, and we're not, we're not looking to, to you know, nickel and dime you out of existence. We want to make sure that you guys are protected and that you have accurate information that you can rely on. Um, and we've, we've had a long relationship with West United Dairymen doing that. Um, I was actually thinking, Melissa, how long I've known you. I think I've known you since right when you got out of school, probably. Um, and uh, we've worked together for a long time to make yep. sure that dairy producers are protected. So the yeah. biggest mistake you can make is don't ask questions. It's, it's tough. We're willing to help out with little things here and there. Also, this is just such a hard time for everybody. And um, I won't say how long I've been with Western Tony, but I, as long as I've known you, it's been the same thing. You're, you're really always willing to reach out and answer a question. And sometimes it's really a simple thing, but it's just specific to a particular business. So we've got to kind of reach out and get the right information. But um super supportive of our members all the time and we can't thank you enough for being a good partner to us and to our dairies. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to work with the industry and really what this is all about is protecting our family farmers and that's something that uh, I've been committed to for a very long time and I know Western has as well. Definitely and just to kind of wrap it up, Tony, um, on the in the same vein of, of reaching out and asking, a lot of different counties have different regulations and even different doctor's offices are advising their patients of different things. So again, if you do have a question, I mean, I had a dairy that had a worker that traveled by car alone to see family in LA. He did not leave the family's house. The father was, um, his father was really ill and was about to pass away from cancer and once the visit was over, he got back in his car, drove home and only made one stop along the way, very safe, and was advised by his doctor's office that he needed to quarantine because he left the county. And we talked the guy through that situation and let him know, you know, what the best practice would be for him and for um, his situation in regards to the paid sick leave and different things. So just a good example of how, you know, based on every case, there might be a different answer about how to handle the situation. And, and I think that that example is a good one because um, unfortunately, one of the things we've seen is a lot of, frankly, misinformation coming out of doctor's offices, um, not because the doctors are dishonest or they have bad intentions. They actually have good intentions, but they know their part of this, which is the medical part of it. They don't necessarily know the regulatory part of it. Um, so if you get something that doesn't sound right to you, again, call Melissa, call Darby, call us. There's, there, there are folks here that are happy to help you, and we want to make sure that you guys have clear answers. Uh, one of the young attorneys who works for me has been very, very closely following all of the legal and regulatory stuff related to COVID, and we can double-check the orders that are in effect in your local area uh, to make sure that you stay in compliance and you do all the things that you need to do. You know, the, 
The hardest part of this is honestly what I've seen more than anything else is that our dairy employees are great people and they want to work. They understand how important it is to keep the food supply going and they understand the service that they and you provide to the community. And if anything, we've seen more dairy workers who are frustrated when they're told that they can't work than the ones who are trying to like take advantage of the system. I have seen very, very little of that. And I've seen a lot of kind of frustrated people who feel good, they feel healthy, they know they're well, and they just want to work and do their part on the ranch. Um, so we want to help you to keep them working and keep your business going uh, and get you through this crisis. Well, thanks so much, Tony, for always jumping on and giving us updates when things are changing and which it seems like for the last seven months, they have been changing a lot and very rapidly. So we sure appreciate the good information for our producers and please feel free to come back anytime. We'll, we'll, we'll be calling Ariel next time something yeah, let changes. Me know, let, let me know anytime you need me. And if we need to set up some like local webinars or anything for some of the different regions, we're happy to do that as well. Great. Thanks so much, Tony. Take care, guys. Wow, what an amazing wealth of information. Thanks again, Tony, for bringing us that important regulatory update and always being supportive of our dairy producers. Up next, Darby and I sat down with Tessa Hall of Curdy May Dairy to hear about the four-year battle her family has had with the nearby municipality. Please listen to Tessa's story and understand the gravity this could have for dairies and other ag entities across the Central Valley. We'd like to welcome Tessa Hall to the podcast today. Tessa is a past WUD field rep and a dairy producer in Tulare County. Thanks so much for taking time to join us today. Yeah, absolutely. So Tessa, we invited you today to talk about a series of issues affecting your family dairy, Curdy Made Farms, which has the potential to affect dairies throughout the state. Can you give us a bit of background information on the situation to get started? Yeah, so, um... Uh, kind of just a rough timeline. It's hard to condense it um, down to a, a short description, but the city of Corcoran, which is the neighboring town a couple miles away from our family dairy outside of Tulare, um, in late 2015, sent us a notice of intent to sue um, under RICRA, which is the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act for um, um, nitrate contamination, alleged nitrate contamination in the city water wells. So they were um, in that claim trying to state that our manure from our cows um, would be classified as a hazardous waste and that the manure from our lagoons where we store um, our waste, you know, manure water would be leaching into the groundwater um, and also from our application of you know, our fertilizers to our fields um, also. So that was in late 2015. Unfortunately, they gave no, uh, that was their notice before the, the lawsuit actually started the timeline and the clock ticking. So there was no discussions. Um, I mean, this has been our neighboring town for 107 years now. We've been in that same spot in the dairy business there. <clears throat> so I'm the fourth generation in our family to work there. And it was, um, most disappointing for that reason. Obviously, it's not like we were some new family that came into town all of a sudden and they didn't know us. Um, there's been a long-standing relationship of us doing business in the city of Corcoran for over a century. So um, they sent us that, the city council sent us that notice of intent to sue. Um, and then from there, we 
we obviously had to retain legal counsel and figure out how to respond to that. So with the help of, you know, allied industry, um, dairy people, you know, organizations like Western United and Dairy Cares, they helped us facilitate getting some communications going just to try to open that line of communication with the city to really find out what's going on here. You didn't approach us about anything. What's, what's the problem? What's happening? Um, just because we were blindsided by this. So um, that went into 2016. All of these things take quite a bit of time, you know, and we went into what is called a tolling agreement. And the tolling agreement is where it kind of puts a stay on the lawsuit and, you're, and you try to work together in good faith to come to an understanding and figure what's going on. And, and if it's successful, then maybe you could come to a resolution. So we went through 2016 and we, um, um, the, the regulatory agencies were notified about it. So the state water board and the regional water quality control board who, you know, both preside over, um, over our dairies in the valley and were one of those for water quality. Um, and that went into, I mean, we went through months and months of technical committee meetings where hydrologists and engineers, um, city representatives, regulatory representatives, from the state and local levels all were involved in these meetings for several months trying to really understand what's going on in their community what are their challenges what are they facing what are they what are they seeing or thinking is um, caused by a curdy made dairy which is us um, and i think that just the city wasn't happy with where that was going because i think um, they they really it came to life they really just wanted a lump sum of cash um, and that was the only thing that was going to satisfy what they wanted. And we weren't willing to do that. We wanted to know that if there was a problem and we were part of it, that that, that problem was getting solved instead of rather just throwing a lump of cash into a, a black hole and not knowing whether it was gonna go towards solving any clean drinking water issues that the city may have for its residents. So um, because that we were trying to work on a strategy to work together and problem solving rather than just throwing money at something to make it go away, um, the city, you know, behind our backs again, kind of blindsided us and wrote um, publicly to the regional water board and the state water board and asked them to take enforcement action against Curdy Made Dairy. So um, again, so that kind of, a lot of what we thought we had worked towards kind of fell apart um, because of that. Um, so any lack of trust that was kind of starting to be built back up was just crumbled again. So that in 20, that was in 2017. So we're now already, you know, a year and a half or so into it. And they did that. So the water board's response to that request for enforcement action against the dairy was, um, that the there's no way that the city can appoint can point the finger at one discharger to say that they are the sole cause of nitrates in the groundwater in the San Joaquin Valley, and that they could never the water board could never just um, just go take enforcement action against one discharger is what we're called you know dischargers because we discharge fertilizer onto our land so. With that, the water board brought in um, probably about close to um, 10 other landowners in the surrounding area that um, farm or, or are also considered dischargers around the city well field. Uh, and so 
from there, the they were kind of we were kind of called the Corcoran Landowner Group, and it was a group of farmers trying to again work with the city to understand and. And so we really had to go through that process again because all these farmers felt like they were kind of blindsided. Well, wait, what, am, what happened? What's going on? What's this about the city needing money? What's this about nitrates in their water? You know, they didn't understand either. So they had to kind of go through that whole process of understanding just like we did. So um, it did get to the point where the landowner group made uh, a cash offer to the city um, to try to help them and get this resolved. And that ended up being in... Um, I think 20 mid 2019 so a year ago or a little over a year ago year and a half and the the city really didn't um think the offer was enough money and really didn't like it and so they took some of their terms off the table that we thought were part of the deal and kind of were contingent on the deal going through and and that kind of made that fall apart also so all this time you know They've been holding the lawsuit over our head, basically holding gun to our head for four, um, almost going on five years now. And they never would um, just flat out get rid of it and dismiss it. But they have changed their path now. So instead of it being a federal lawsuit like it was initially, it is now in local Tulare County Superior Court. And, um, and they have served us with the lawsuit last summer. So we've been in active litigation for, um, you know, almost a year and a half. And now the, the lawsuit is for trespass and nuisance. So, and negligence. Um, so they're saying we've been negligent in our business practices and we trespassed into the waterways with our nitrate, with the nitrates from our nitrogen use and created a public nuisance. So I guess I should back up to, to kind of explain the proximity of, of the logistics of how, where they are and all of that. So, so dairy we run and operate was built in the late 1980s um, and they have a small well field with five wells on the neighboring farmer's property. So they have access to the water rights there. So they don't own the property. Um, they just have these five wells on there. And years ago in the 1970s, the previous farmer um, farming entity had granted them lifetime rights to the water rights under that property. So the reason for that is because um, anyone that's familiar with the Corcoran area and the Tulare Lake bed is it's where everything in the valley used to drain to. So um, they don't have just they don't really they don't have access to very much good quality water for drinking purposes. Um, it's you know, obviously they, they're called the farming capital of the world. That's what the city of Corcoran calls themselves. So um, before, you know, 200 years ago, or 250 years ago, everything used to drain there and it was a massive lake. So sediments that came off the foothills and everything else. So they are riddled with arsenic, TOC, hydrogen sulfide, color, odor, nitrate. I mean, they have a handful and a huge host of constituents that they have to deal with in the groundwater that and nitrates is probably actually actually one of their um lesser problems considering some of the other things um subsidence is another huge issue that they have to deal with they're 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 nearly ground zero for subsidence in the valley them and red top and so um, as we know, a lot of that is caused because naturally occurring droughts happen and have for hundreds of years in the valley. So it's not necessarily a new thing, but when we do have a very severe drought, it causes um, cities like the city of Corcoran to have some major issues because they rely so heavily 
on groundwater. They, they don't have any surface water for drinking water purposes. It's um, nine groundwater wells, which is very typical in our area to have that. So um, arsenic is their number one constituent and problem in their groundwater. They had to build a $20 million arsenic treatment plant in 2006. So they have a huge debt load on their water fund that they have to service. And they have drilled quite a few deep wells below the Corcoran clay layer, which are very expensive to do, especially for municipal use. So um, given all of that, they're in a tight pinch for money on their water fund. And um, for them to try to ask any more of their ratepayers is a difficult thing for them to do because they're a disadvantaged community. So they're looking for new creative avenues to come up with funding to fund new, new wells and new water projects. So um, everyone has to keep in mind these wells that they're um, claiming that have been contaminated with nitrates in the groundwater were drilled in the 1970s. So they're 40, 50 year old wells um, and, any, and those wells have been run hard for those 40 or 50 years. It's not just a seasonal use like agriculture would use. You know, in most good years where we have a normal amount of surface water, we use our wells seasonally and as minimally as possible. Whereas the city, they don't have that because they don't have the surface water to offset their groundwater use. So they run those wells very hard. Um, <clears throat> we've discovered through technical documents that those wells have had cracked encasing failures back into the 1980s, you know, pretty much brand new wells that were starting to have failures because there was a massive drought in the late 80s also. So um, whenever there's a drought and a lack of water, it hugely affects them for subsidence issues. And um, the water table obviously is heavily relied on for groundwater source for huge large farming entities like Boswell Corporation that's right there in the city of Corcoran and their well fields and Corcoran Irrigation District has huge well fields there. So um, when everyone's sucking off of that aquifer because we're not getting any surface water from the state, it causes a lot of constituent problems in the water. We're not able to recharge. Um, we're not getting that surface water to help re replenish that aquifer. It just causes a lot of problems all around for everyone, especially someone like the city of Corcoran. So um, I know that's a lot <laughs> of information in one um, shot there. I hope that all made sense about um, the wells are next door to us on the neighboring um, piece of property. So we don't farm necessarily around the wells. We're just next door but we are the closest um, stones throw away dairy facility to them. But this isn't gonna impact just dairies. Um, I mean, we have similar nitrate issues in, on the east side of Tulare County, you know, where it's a lot of citrus is grown and there's near, I don't know if there's any dairies over there. Actually, when I think about it, um, a couple of years ago, the state water board or sent cease and desist orders to about a dozen farmers on that side of the county, east Tulare County and none of them were dairymen. So um, some people outside of the dairy industry like to allocate this to being just a dairy problem, but really it's not, that, you know. And then also in Salinas Valley, two or three years ago, um, there was litigation and regulatory agencies involved with a group of farmers in the Salinas Valley also with nitrate issues and there's no dairies left over there if I'm right. So I think, um, you know, being able to, for them, to, their technical argument is solely based on we have nitrates in the groundwater, there's the dairy, it must be them. But it's not that simple. You know, the, the head of the Regional Water Quality Control Board, Pamela Creedon and Patrick Palupa, her successor, have both stated publicly 
in front of groups of meetings with the city and other regulatory agencies that the, the groundwater in the San Joaquin Valley is a bathtub of nitrates. So it's so hard to figure out, um, it, first of all, how old those nitrates are. Um, they've had, we're, we're learning that the, the water around us has had nitrates for many, many years. So to be able to age that and figure out how long it's been there and exactly where the source is very, very challenging. Um, so, so they've gone to great lengths now to try to justify their actions, which is really disappointing um, for the taxpayers of Corcoran. So we are not technically in the city of Corcoran, we are still Tulare address. So um, we felt that made it a little easier for them on their consciences to, to pick us off from the herd and, and choose us and litigate against us because we technically aren't paying taxes in the city of Corcoran, even though we do attend a business there and support a lot of organizations and schools and 4-H and FA and everything. Um, and it's, I think it's put a little bit of a bad taste in the, the water board's mouths for them too. So they um, have acted badly, quite frankly, in front of the regulatory agencies. They've said they wanted to solve drinking water problems and come up with a project that will solve their problems. And then they turn around and when they don't like working with the landowner group or don't think it's moving fast enough because they're not getting the money that they want, then um, their knee-jerk reaction is to kind of hit us over the head with the lawsuit and continually threaten that. And I think the water board has really actually started to see through their actions of how they're um, um, kind of just bullying people, you know, and extortion tactics. And so the water board uh, last year wrote a letter to all of the um, stakeholders, the landowner group and us and the, and the other regulatory agencies in the city stating that they were going to remove themselves from the negotiations because um, the city wouldn't even counter offer the landowner group's um, cash offer that we made. So um, it's just not a great working environment and it's not healthy for the city to be using the taxpayer money that way. Um, they have other options um, that is really, really disappointing. The SB 200, $130 million of grant funding that's available at the state that Newsom just signed in to law over a year ago. Um, they are precluding themselves from being eligible to receive that for a clean drinking water project to help their nitrate situation because they're litigating against an alleged polluter, which is us. So um, there's other cities that are almost uh, have water infrastructure structure almost identical to them, you know, just directly north of them that have just received four and five million dollar grants for putting in water infrastructure and they've had ribbon cuttings already and they're getting that, those projects rolling and that's such a great use of that money. That's what it's available for. It was crafted and passed with communities exactly like Corcoran in mind and they're completely ignoring it and not using it for what, it was, what it's there for. Um, so they've kind of had a lot of opportunities and failed or shot themselves in the foot um, with the, the group on the east side of Tulare County that I spoke of that um, farmers that had to um, had the cease and desist orders from the state water board, they their irrigated lands coalitions ended up stepping in and negotiating some settlements with the state water board on that situation. And they have put, since put in um, drinking water kiosks in a lot of small communities kind of outside of Farmersville and some areas over there along the eastern side of the county and even stretching into further into the county because 
that burden is now went from the cease and desist orders being just the burden of 12 farmers to now it's spread across 2,000 growers in these irrigated lands coalitions. Mm -hmm. So Corcoran was specifically carved out of being a recipient of any clean drinking water kiosk and part of that settlement negotiation because of their ongoing litigation right now. So they've shot themselves in the foot with situations like that. Um, and I think that they've lost trust, obviously, within their community and within the regulatory agencies. Um, and they're sitting um, and throwing money at attorneys and spending, you know, up to, we've seen it in public records, $50,000 a month on attorney fees wow. to sue their neighbor rather than going and re refocusing that money and applying for a grant that we know they're eligible for and could receive and get the project going. <laughs> So, um, so it's really disappointing. The lack of leadership and the lack of foresight um, within the city is, is really sad for the people that live there. Absolutely. I, I, our next question, Tessa, was kind of what the root of the issue is. Obviously, it's not about cleaning up the groundwater contamination. I mean, it's probably in the background somewhere there, but they, there really is, it seems like an underlying just need to fill a financial gap and they're looking to do that. It, it, it's too bad because I think if you add up that $50,000 a month over the last four years, they probably could have covered a lot of costs on great things. And as you said, been eligible for all these really good projects. It's really been hard to get an understanding of what the, the driving factor is here and who, and who is driving it. I think, right. you know, as painful as it's been for this to drag on, it has been eye-opening for us. So I guess that's the silver lining is kind of getting a better understanding of who's involved in the politics of it and what the driving factor really is. In the very beginning, we just really didn't understand what was going on and it takes a while to try to get there because pe people at the city just haven't been forthcoming at all. So um, I think things that are questionable are their water works department and their management of their water treatment plant and their management of their well infrastructure. I think they have a history of really applying um, too much pressure on specific wells and not taking care of them and maintaining them correctly. So they have continual well, well failure after well failure. Um, money management is such a huge problem there. So. Mm -hmm they'll throw money into fixing a 50 year old well, constantly rehabilitating it and refurbishing it to no end. To what end, you know? So it's right. like, at what point are you continually gonna put $60,000 here, $100,000 there into an old failing well when a lot of farmers would say, you know, accept that it's done and let's move on. We need to find a new location to drill some wells. You know, their hydrologist in the past 20 years has recommended that where they have these five wells, um, that they call it their well field, you know, that well field is tapped out, it's done. And he warned them of that 20 years ago. And, 20, and look where we are 20 years later, they're yeah. here with the same wells now suing their neighbors. <laughs> so it's just, um, I think the debt load is huge for them. And they, um, They've drilled a couple deep wells, you know, over a thousand feet easily, um, high producing, high volume wells, and they, um, they're they always going to have to deal with something in the water, with, no matter what it is, whatever aquifer they're tapping into. And so when they drill those deep wells, it's a huge investment, but they haven't totally um, done the proper investigation needed before they make those expenditures. And that's also documented, unfortunately, in public documents. It shows that 
they've been really lax and sometimes they've just gone for it and drilled a well and spent $2 million and unfortunately it comes up as a failure and that's a, that's in their track record and their history over the last decade. So um, obviously that's not sustainable for anyone that would be in private business nor in public. Mm -hmm. So um, that, you know, we wouldn't be able to do that. We'd be really suffering if we were spending that kind of money on projects that were failures, you know, so as a private business. So I think there's money mismanagement and there's been some carelessness and, um, and some lack of oversight on some of these projects. And frankly, maybe they're just inexperienced and don't know, I don't know, what, um, the water department, I think definitely someone should be questioning their ability to manage large projects and infrastructure and make sure that it's all maintained well and, and that they have a sustainable water supply for the future. So, so money does, you know, odd things to people when they have too much or not enough. And I think we're seeing that manifest itself in the city right now, unfortunately. Certainly. And if there has to be a silver lining in things, I think the only silver lining I can see in this situation is that the taxpayers of Corcoran are getting really a good primer on what's actually going on in their city. There's probably a lot coming to light that people weren't aware of. And it's really too bad that, you know, good, hardworking people have been paying taxes into these, you know, black holes of financial mismanagement is, is really what it appears. So, gosh. Right. So most of our employees, we have, you know, 45 or 50 employees. Most of them are residents of the city of Corcoran. And yeah. what the, the, the vicious cycle is, is they don't trust the city water. So they buy bottled water and drink that. And then they find out that the city is suing their employer for $65 million because of alleged contamination. <laughs> and that's the people that they work for. So if they put their employer out of business, they have to go find a job somewhere else, yet they still don't trust the water and they're going to buy bottled water. <laughs> no, it's just, it's just, you know, it just, none of it is right. And none of it makes sense. So, um, yeah. The next question I want to ask Tessa, it's a little personal and totally understand if you don't want to get into it, but, um, Financially, this isn't just impacting the city of Corcoran. It's obviously very big impact to your dairy. Um, so do you want to speak a little bit to that um, and kind of how you're getting through it and what maybe others can do to help you? I mean, this, this is pretty precedent setting in a lot of ways. So, um, you know, as much of a personal issue as that is, it, it is informative to other producers. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, I think it's probably pretty well known that litigation is very expensive for anyone in the state of California. So, uh, they, you know, the joke is true that that's the quickest way to get rich if you can win is to litigate. So, um, you know, that's been a burden for us. And um, especially with the volatility in the industry the last five and 10 years, it's just been crazy, right? So, um, we're kind of just taking it as we can, and we've been very fortunate to have very good attorneys. Um, I would say our attorney, our main attorney that's been on this case for almost five years with us is a strategizer, and he's very judicious, judicious with his time, and he understands that we're not an AT&T or a Boeing heir here. We can't pay $2 million bills every month for attorney's yeah. fees, so... Um, he, so I, I feel very, very fortunate for that. I would think that it was a blessing that that guy came down our path. Um, so we have, we have, he's in Southern California because he specializes in environmental litigation. Um, 
And so we have him. And then we also, when the, the lawsuit was filed in local Tulare County Court, we had to retain local litigation that our local uh, counsel that has experience with that court system. So, um, so we do have local counsel out of Visalia also on the team now. So we have three attorneys working on this and they're fantastic also. I can't speak highly enough of all of them. So I, I feel very fortunate that we have a fantastic team and I've been putting so much time and effort into that, this. And that's one thing our attorneys have been great about is letting me do a lot of digging and research to save costs. So rather than spending X amount per hour on them doing a lot of digging and reviewing, 70,000 pieces of paper that the city sent over to us in discovery requests. I've been taking the time to just do that over the last six months or so. Um, so I, I really am an active part of the team. I'm fortunate that I have the time to do that because a lot of producers um, or any business owner might not have the time to dedicate to that. But fortunately with my husband and the way we have a structure at our business, I can do that. And this is such a big part of our lives now. Um, Saying that is odd. <laughs> I don't think I've ever said that. So um, yeah, so I think we're really fortunate and we have Western United Dairymen and Tulare County Farm Bureau and Kings County Farm Bureau have really, really stepped up in the last year to and, or two years to just really um, help go public with this. So, um, you know, we were kind of quiet about it at first because we thought, oh my gosh, maybe we, maybe we are a problem. Like, where does this come from? We didn't know what was going on. What, or what, what information do they have? What technical work have they been doing? So we just, there was a lot of lack of understanding of the situation. And we thought maybe we did do something here. So let's take a step back. And we really tried to work with them. And then now as, as this has gone on, they don't have that information to show that we've been causing a problem is what we're finding. So um so we have gone public with it obviously and we've showed up at city council meetings and that has been a big turning point for me emotionally to know that i'm not on an island and that i have all of the support of tulare and the farming industry behind us and the dairy industry because um at times you do feel so isolated and like why is this why are we being picked on? Why is this just happening to us yeah. when nitrates in the groundwater is a valley-wide problem? This is not an isolated problem to Corcoran and its well fields. Um, so, um, so yeah, that moral and emotional support, I, I, I've been telling people, it has been so good for us to keep fighting this on behalf of all of the valley agriculture um, and just as important as any financial support. Absolutely. And just as we've been following this for the last couple of years, and especially after it went public, I just, I, it's, it kind of hurts everybody's heart a little bit to see something like this happening to your family, Tessa, because you guys are such a great example of producers that pay attention, follow regulatory standards, and just completely do the right thing. And it's, it's kind of, it's hard. It, it's a hard pill to swallow that you could do the right thing completely and still have something like this thrown at you and you guys are so tough I I don't know how you deal with it every day and it is it's it's sad to think like this is a part just a part of your life now because some mm -hmm. city official or a group of city officials just decided like there's a dairy over there maybe we can fill a mm -hmm. financial gap through suing them it's it's terrible and I can't wait till the day this all gets you know taken care of and you can just be the good dairyman that you are 
Um, right. So I, we've also been, I think, fortunate to know that the regulatory agencies are standing by their statements of yes. the fact that you can't single out one source of nitrates in the in the valley in the groundwater. So um, they have not issued any violations because of anything they found. They've come out and inspected us a couple times, and we feel like we've probably been scrutinized a little harder than other dairies on an average year, you know. Um, but I think it's fortunately, you know, we always have tried to do everything right, and my dad and grandfather prided themselves on that of, you know, um, we like to be on the cutting edge of technology and adopt new practices and get better every year. We're constantly striving for improvement to see what's new and available and what we can afford and how we can do it um, because it's a constant changing environment. We like to be adapting to that all the time. So, um, you know, my dad was um, awarded one of the an, an EPA honor and recognition for installing one of the first large-scale solar systems on a dairy in, the, in California. So things like that, that, um, you know, my great-grandfather was the first Tulare County Farmer of the Year ever awarded that in the 60s. And then my grandfather got the same award and my dad and his brother and cousins received it also. And um, Tulare County Farm Bureau, you know, recently honored my dad with um, their agriculturalist of the year award and ag camps, you know, so it's not like um, we haven't cared about our communities and our employees and the environment and our animals and how we do everything we really to do try to strive to do it the right way. So um, we've always tried to stay um, on the right path and in compliance with all those regulatory agencies. Um, so it is nice to know that you know, the industry and the community are recognizing that and, and that the regulatory agencies are recognizing that also and um, not just using the enforcement hammer on us just to um, appease the local, the local city. Yeah, gosh. Um, one question, Tessa, that Paul Souza um, wanted us to ask you is um, about CV salts. We've been talking a lot about that program and producers making sure that they're getting involved and being apprised of, of what is going on with that program. And Paul thought that that had a really interesting connection to your situation. Can you speak a little bit to that process? I think kind of in the, in the synopsis you gave us, it sort of came up in a roundabout way, but um, can you speak to, a little bit to the CV salts and how that's played a role in this situation? Yeah, so CV salts has been, um, you know, if someone's not familiar with that, it's been an on, and I'm not super familiar with it because I'm not involved in the actual um, planning of it, but it's been an, uh, I think, 10 year, you know, nearly a decade long effort com between communities and regulatory agencies and industries to really address the groundwater issues that we do have in the valley to be able to provide clean drinking water to all of our communities. And um, that, that program has been discussed and, um, and vetted in length with the leadership of the city of Corcoran to help them understand that that effort is here and coming just for, for cities just like them, right? So, they're obviously struggling to figure out how to juggle all these balls and pay for all these projects and they have in, in their water infrastructure department. Um, and that's where CV Salts is really, I think, gonna play a big role and it's happening now. It's already started, right? So they're forming these management zones. 
um, to bringing you know, industries and communities together to understand a, and identify A, what are the problems that are existing in the groundwater in this local area, these management zones, and B, how do we work towards trying to find a good solution that everyone can live with? Um, and so we were really, I think the regulatory agencies were really hoping that the city and the surrounding landowners could be that kind of one of those first prototypes to see how this program could work. And it, and it just, it, it doesn't work when only one party wants to do it. <laughs> so when the city doesn't want to participate and all they want is just a cash lump sum of money and that's it, give it to us and go away and we'll deal with it ourselves. It, that's just not going to satisfy anyone. You know, from a business perspective of us and the landowners, we have every right to know what our money is going into and that it's a feasible and doable project enhancing the community. And when you can't give us that guarantee, you just want the cash and walk away, that's not going to satisfy us or the regulatory agencies. And frankly, the taxpayers shouldn't be satisfied with that either. So, right. um, so sadly, they, they did not want to wait for CV salts to take effect and for that process to roll out. So it's going to be happening now where our dairy is in a priority one management zone. So this year and going into next year, our management zone is going to be formed and it's going to be really interesting to see how Corcoran deals with that because their city well field is in priority one also. So the city itself is two miles away. They, pump, they have to pump their groundwater from two miles away because the water at the city itself is so terrible. So the city itself is not in priority one, but it's well field next to us is. So they um, could really just realize what, the, what they're doing to the community here because of dividing everyone apart and trying to pit farmer against farmer. Um, instead of working that way, they should be working together with everyone that's trying to solve these problems um, instead of creating such a litigious environment. So it, it, again, it's sad. And I, and I hope CV Salts is successful to help people work together rather than putting them in the situation that we're in now. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you so much, Tessa, for everything that you've shared. I think it's, I was just struck as I was listening to you and remembering, you know, I've been to some of the meetings in Corcoran and I've seen these people show up for you. And I think the more people that know about this issue, I'm hoping the more people are going to want to show up and be there for you and support you. And you've tried, your family's tried so hard to not only do the dairy business right, but to just really do what it's right, what's right to be in a community and support your community. And I think that people can see that if they look in so many different ways. Um, so kind of again, as we wrap up, if there's anything else you'd like to add, and then on top of that, if people wanna help or people wanna be there for you, what's the best way for them to do that? And, and why is that important? Um, I mean, we've tried the letter writing campaigns to the city council and we've tried talking to their elected officials, you know, at, even at the state levels. Um, I guess if, it, you know, hopefully we can provide updates to what our strategies are here and if there is an opportunity where people can come to the city council and speak to them. I think that always does have an impact. It means so much more to see someone in person speaking on behalf of an issue. Um, rather than just writing a letter, you know, the letters do help. And then we've had some different, um, you know, fundraising events going on and, and one just finished with Surrey County Farm Bureau, but if they feel compelled to donate and, and help us pay our attorney's fees um, to offset the costs of that, 
you know, we'll always take a donation. <laughs> um, I've gotten over our pride of not asking for help with that, and we're just asking now. So um, you could send um, the donation to Western United Dairymen or Tulare County Farm Bureau, and they would make sure it gets to us if you're not comfortable just in or in sending it directly to Kearney Made Dairy. Um, but all of that, you know, I can't express the, like I said, the support is huge, just as much morally and emotionally as financially to know that um, people understand how detrimental this can be for everyone in agriculture in the Valley, not just for one single dairy family. So um, I'm really hoping we have some good outcomes in our, in our court dates here and, um, and hopefully we can get a win for everyone. Well, thanks so much. And again, we really appreciate you taking the time to be on and, and share your story. So thanks again, Tessa. Thank you guys for having me. Yosemite Farm Credit is the farmer's choice for agriculture financing. As a farmer-owned cooperative, we are dedicated to serving our neighbors in the agriculture community with financial products and services tailored to your operation and backed with the relationship you can trust. Whether you're purchasing real estate, making an improvements to the dairy, or wanting to purchase or lease equipment, we're here to help our members prosper. Visit our website at yosemitefarmcredit.com to find a branch location nearest you. Well, thanks again, Tessa, so much for being on the show. We really appreciate you and taking the time to share your story with our listeners and we just want to touch on again, I think something we've talked about throughout COVID, but I think that during times like these, it can be easier for producers who are under so much stress and ever-changing circumstances to struggle with mental health issues. And we just want to really stress again that if you have any issues or you just need someone to talk to, you can call us or you can check our show notes and we'll also have some additional mental health resources listed there. Absolutely. And even if you're just feeling a little bit hopeless or depressed and you don't think it's a big issue, please just reach out and talk to one of us or one of us can help connect you with resources, can just talk you through some of the situations. I think a lot of people are struggling and it's really worth it to just check in with friends, family, and those that may be able to just give you a little bit of a, a lift during this time. Yep. And we want to give a huge thank you as we wrap up this episode to Annie, Tony and his staff and Tessa for making time to be on this episode and making this week's episode possible. Also a huge thanks to all of our sponsors, especially PG&E and Yosemite Farm Credit. If you'd like information on sponsorship or how to advertise on our podcast, please reach out to our office at info, I-N-F-O at wudairies.com or you can give the office a call at 209-527-6453. And remember, you can always reach out to us with questions, comments, and content requests for the podcast. Our Gmail is wud.pod at gmail.com. That's wudpod at gmail.com. You can reach me at mlema at wudairies.com. And Darby? I'm Darby, D-A-R-B-Y at wudairies.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite platforms and have a great week. While Western United Dairies respects the varied views of our podcast guests, please know that views expressed on Seen and Heard may not necessarily reflect the positions of the Western United Dairies Board of Directors. 
Thank you to Western United Dairy's generous 2020 business sponsors, Gar Bennett, California Dairy Magazine, Farm Credit Alliance, FNR Ag Services, Moss Energy Works, Bennett Environmental, PG&E, and Yosemite Farm Credit. We appreciate our sponsors and thank them for their continued support. If you'd like more information on how to sponsor Western United Dairies or this podcast, please send us an email at info at wudairies.com. That's info at wudairies.com. Thank you.